Hey, everybody, and welcome to The Brand Called You. So listen, I'm a big talker. This is not a surprise. It's gotten me into trouble my whole life. I mean, my classmates used to tell me to shut up. My teachers would tell me to shut up. In fact, I was once talking too much at the dinner table, and my Hungarian aunt actually looked at me, and she said, you know, God only gives you a certain amount of words, and once you use them up, that's it. And I was sure that at age 21, I would suddenly... But the truth is, I just love language. I love to talk. I get joy out of it. I love when people use adjectives. I love, I just love it. And so that's why I'm so excited to speak to our guest today, Ev Fedorenko, who is basically who has spent her entire adult life studying language. She's a cognitive neuroscientist who studies how the human brain supports this quintessentially human ability to use language. She's an associate professor of Neuroscience in the Brain and Cognitive Science Department and the McGovern Institute for Brain Research at MIT. And she even has a lab named after her there called the Ev Lab, whose mission it is to understand how the brain creates language. So welcome, I'm so happy to have you here. It's great to be here. Now, you know, I have to create a disclaimer right off the bat, which is I'm completely not a scientist, but I am a kind of wannabe scientist because every man in my family Going back to Tsar Nicholas was a scientist. Um, I even have an uncle who disagreed with Einstein. And to the day he died, the license plate on his car said E does not equal MC squared. So, <laughs> That's great. But still, I don't understand a lot. And I thought that I would love to start out with a really kind of basic question. Um, you use language mo- models as tools to understand how language works. What actually is a language model? Yeah, that's a very good question. I mean, so... so- a disclaimer on my end is that um, uh, my background is in experimental psychology, so I only started using language models in my research like a few years ago, and I myself have been learning a lot about how these things work, but basically um, these models are um, very good statistical learners. Uh, you can throw different kinds of input at them. And there's different kinds of models that specialize for different kinds of input. Like there's models that specialize on visual processing and they can represent visual stimuli. There's language models, which have become incredibly popular. Even are they, among are they non-scientists. visual uh-huh. pictures that you would see? Is it like something you would see on a visual screen or is it something more statistical? For the vision models, they take the like just any pixelated image and they extract all sorts of complex information from it like objects and things like that they can decide if it's a dog or a muffin or whatever you may have seen these like challenge images that were problematic at some point Mm -hmm. for these models like (laughs) some dogs look like little muffin face anyway so language models basically um, get as input large amounts of language typically billions or even trillions of words so you can take a, a huge amount of language on some you know uh, some large corpus on the internet and you feed this input to the models where a lot of the success of these models came was from figuring out that training them to predict what comes next is a very good training objective. So you can think of our whole brain trying to basically always predict what's going to happen next because then we can be more prepared you can think about how evolutionarily it's very useful what's going to come next right if you Mm -hmm. see a tiger a few meters away it might be useful to know that he might come your way and you better be ready for that right so um uh training these models uh on these mass massive amounts of corpora uh by getting them to try to predict the next word in some context 
has proven to be a very, very efficient way for these models to acquire some kind of representations that allow them to do all sorts of things now. Like now anybody can go and talk to Chad GPT and ask them okay. all sorts of things because they effectively become kind of these repositories of knowledge uh, because they're exposed to these massive amounts of information through the language that they're trained on. I mean, so obviously when you started, you didn't really, you weren't really thinking of the implications uh, for for it, for for uh, AI, for example, right? Not, I mean, when I, when I started working on language, these models weren't around yet. Like the models that were around were kind of like the 90s level connectionist models that were kind of these toy things. They could do some very small pieces of language, but in a very limited way. And I was like, okay, that's, you know, that's very limited. So I, I was like, I'll just focus on doing experimental work, trying to understand how humans process language. And then suddenly, you know, in like whatever, 2017, 18, 19, like suddenly the AI revolution um, just went out of control. And suddenly we had these models that are talking to you as if they are a conspecific. They produce text that's coherent, fluent. Um, they answer questions. They can, uh, you know, sometimes even make jokes. Uh, so it's, um, and then it became kind of a very tempting, uh, powerful tool to use because we're, in general, we're very limited in how we can study language because animals um, don't quite have a communication system that's comparable enough. There are bits and pieces of language, again, that you can study in animals, like vocalizations or basic perception of vocalizations. But this massive um, system that basically allows us to translate any thought into a code that a conspecific understands, right? Like that I can just take anything. It's basically like telepathy, except <laughs> it does go through this channel of language, but I can tell what what's in my head and somehow tell you about it. And then you'll know what's inside my head. It's a cool tool. And so now these models can be used to try Although to- Although you, uh, again, you know, bear with me with my lack of scientific knowledge, but I I, I know that for years years ago, I read of Noam Chomsky and, and he used to say that language and thought were inextricably linked, but actually right. I think your, your yeah. pivotal research has shown that could you articulate that a little, maybe in layman's yeah. terms? For, for Definitely, those yeah. Yeah, yeah. So this is, um, yeah, he's not right about this. I mean, that's okay. Like in science, people are wrong all the time. And a lot of people have, um, he's not the only one. People like early Wittgenstein also thought that kind of language is the tool that we use for thinking. And without language, you couldn't think. And there's basically two methods in that we have as neuroscientists to actually answer that question like do we use language to think one method is based on functional imaging so this is in um non-invasive approaches meaning like without having to cut into your brain this <laughs> is functional imaging like functional mri yeah, so i yeah. put you in the scanner i get you to do some tasks mm -hmm. and the, the basic idea of the method is when cells fire so like when you're doing something in your brain mm -hmm. cells get depleted they need sugar and they need uh, oxygen and for that to happen, new blood needs to come into that area and replenish the cells. And that's the signal we measure with functional imaging. So mm -hmm. we can put you in the scanner, get you to do some language task, right? Read some sentences or listen to some sentences. We find the bits in your brain that do language that are much more working much harder when you're dealing with linguistic stimuli. And then you can ask, do these same little bits in the brain, do they also work when I ask you to solve some math problems now? or to reason about the, the causal link between two events or something like that. Or, you know, imagine what somebody else might be thinking when they're engaging in a particular action, right? 
And uh, I went in with a very open mind, you know, expecting to maybe find some shared uh, resources between language and these other things. And empirically, it just turns out to be the case that those things really are distinct. Um, there is this set of brain regions in adults that only respond when you produce or understand language. So when you're engaging this kind of, um, you know, you can think of kind of encoding, decoding, encoding thoughts into a sequence of words or decoding thoughts from word sequences, right? Which is basically what language production comprehension is, right? Understanding versus producing language. And that's the only thing that system does. Those are the only things that system does. When you do math, when you listen to music, when you reason about other people's minds, um, that system is silent. And instead other systems in the brain come into play and support those abilities. So that's kind of one method is like looking at overlap and what's active yeah. when you do these things. I mean, obviously you're not an anthropologist, but do you have any idea why the brain evolved that way? It was I always thought that basically all roads lead to our survival, that, that yes. everything. So why do you think, um, or was it just that it, language came so much later than the rest? Or why do you think it emerged that way? Um, I mean, so, so it's a very interesting question, very deep question. So um, the thing that happened in human brains relative to our closest primate relatives like chimps is mm -hmm. we expanded the parts of the brain that don't support perception and motor control. Okay, so there's big chunks of our brain that do things like vision, hearing things, you know, sensation. Mm -hmm. And big chunks of our brain that do motor control, like moving our eyes, making things with our faces, moving our hands, locomoting, all these things. And in um, uh, many other species, uh, they all have those are very conserved parts of the brain. They all have them. And what changed is the relative proportion of the parts of the brain that don't do that. So uh, suddenly in humans, there was a lot of cells that weren't doing those things. And you can do a lot with free cells. You can encode a lot of information there. And so these kind of non-perceptual, non-motor systems um, basically support what's sometimes called as high-level functions, right? Like thinking, you know, knowledge of the world, reasoning, language falls into that bucket. It's these things that are kind of above and beyond basic inputs, outputs that right. our body engages in with the environment. Um, and so it's not like only the language system emerged mm -hmm. other things. So the system that supports kind of general goal directed actions, right? Like you have some task and you have to get it done. Mm -hmm. Animals have that system, at least primates, non-human primates have that system. It's just a much smaller, you know, less developed system. So that system expanded in humans, the system that allows us to uh, understand other members of our species expanded in humans mm -hmm. and the system that supports communication expanded in humans. And so suddenly there was just a lot more room to do these things that are not directly tied to inputs, outputs of our bodies. How long, speaking of eras and decades, does it take for these evolutionary changes to take place? It's like it's millions. Like millions. Yeah. I, my, my question to you is gonna be one of the future, which is, um, mm. For example, how how will our understanding or our use of language change now that we have all these new inputs such as social media? And yeah. is there is there a predictive way of of seeing what will actually if we manage to survive that that's long? An, yeah, that's an yeah, exactly. The planet will probably melt before then. But you know, it's um 
It's another very interesting question. And I bet people were asking these kinds of questions when, for example, books became widely spread, mm -hmm. right? And suddenly you can have this, you know, broad access to information, right? You can go to a library and, yeah. and like read all sorts of things about all sorts of things. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, there, there is... It, it's hard to say like I, I don't yeah. I don't know if I can make predictions about this but there are certain limits um, to our memory and processing mechanisms that such that even if you expose a human to vastly more information it's not like they will keep being able to retain more and more information right I mean presumably that's why in our society there's things like specialization right division of labor some people become doctors and they're really good at what they do some people become shoemakers some people become philosophers like there's a range of things you can be and you're really good at a particular set of things um uh as opposed to being kind of like a you know or is it possible that our brain will that's that region or that center for processing lots of information will expand and at this at the expense of something else i don't know it's a very i don't know that would be very interesting i mean it, you know again these things for these things to happen it has to help our survival right yeah. it has to be such that yeah. people in whom that capacity expands are like better able to attract mates or something like that or better <laughs> able to survive or something for longer so I, i'm going to be very selfish for a minute and ask you uh -huh. some questions that have to do with my own field i was a professional what? storyteller for 30 years and now I'm a story coach. So I help, I go into companies. And so the first question I have is, you know, one of the things I always teach my clients is the spoken word is a very different animal than the written word. Um, when you study language processing, is it different for orality as opposed for um, written? Does it, is it different regions of the brain for reading and speaking? So, okay. <laughs> so the system that I was talking about, the language system, that system doesn't seem to care where the information came from, meaning that it's engaged. It's engaged when you listen to sentences. It's engaged when you read sentences. In fact, it's also engaged when you write sentences and when you speak sentences. It seems like that system basically stores linguistic knowledge representations. Like, what does it mean to learn a language? If you ever learned like a foreign language, you probably have some awareness of what it takes, right? You learn about the sounds of the language, how they go together. You learn a bunch of words and what they mean. And you yeah. learn some rules for how to put those together and to like to make phrases. So I think the system that we've been studying is the system that stores these links, right? These links between bits of sounds, or if we're talking about sign language, it's, it's visual input and some meaning, which is stored somewhere else outside of the language system. Oh, it is? Meaning is stored elsewhere? Yeah. Uh, because there's a lot of meaning that you can get at, without language, right? So there has to be some more abstract code. And the language system we think of as basically just a set of pointers to those more abstract representations. And that's why sometimes when individuals lose language, like when they have aphasia, right, which is, you know, as a result of stroke, you may lose some parts of this language system. Those individuals typically still understand the world. They can reason about the world. They can look at a picture and say, is this a plausible event? Can this happen? Or if I give them a set of pictures, can you order them in the way that things will likely happen in the world? They can do that. They can do those kinds of things. They just can't convert between those thoughts, these abstract meaning representations and a sequence of words because they lost those links. Does that make sense? It does, but that, that leads to my next question, which mm. is when I'm when I'm teaching people about how to be effective, um, I always, or not even how to be effective, when I'm trying to get them to recall a story, mm -hmm. always, if I attach a, a, a very deeply felt emotion to it, they can always um, 
recall words and language and memory. In other words, I, I don't. I guess what I'm asking is: is there ways of activating certain language regions of the brain through the use of emotion? Do, do can we draw? Are there ways to enhance or activate through ex, external things like emotion? That's a great question. That probably that kind of processing the, the effects you're talking about, like memory for particular, like emotionally yeah. linked things, that also probably happens in something like our long-term memory centers, like the hippocampal circuits. There's like parts okay. inside our temporal lobe um, okay. systems that store our long-term memories and um, an emotional center like the amygdala also lives around nearby okay. there. And there's really cool work, like one thing where we deal with this question of language emotion links is in uh, looking at bilinguals and multilinguals, because you may know um, if you're a bilingual or multilingual person, you may know that there's a special status of your native language with respect to emotion. Like, for example, swear oh. words are much more upsetting in your native language than in a language oh. that later that's or really like interesting words yeah and some people also have research that suggests that for example psychotherapy works better in your native language because it's easier to be like emotionally detached if you're like i'm an example of this like i tried therapy for many years and when i talk about my like early whatever trauma childhood stuff it's like i'm talking about somebody else like it's very easy to kind of talk about it in this and if i start sometimes talking through it in my native language which i don't hardly use ever at all like it just can it just gets me in a certain way that just doesn't happen when i do this in english anyway so there's this cool not quite oh and you can also measure like people's responses to like i said like things like swear words they have higher con skin conductance response like physiologically you can measure these things that there's some like much deeper link to these kind of core emotional centers and how it's implemented nobody quite understands but it suggests that some very early experiences where language is linked to when we're still learning about the world are very yeah very deep. and what about stress i mean have you is there had there been any studies that show how stress affects our language processing i'm just curious i'm, I'm sure always thinking has. about like you know what's happening in the world now and it just seems like um between wars and and yeah. anxieties is yeah. there long-term changes in in the way we absorb or think about language due to, due um, to external effects yeah i'm sure i i'm sure that's tr that has to be true because of course like language will reflect the inner contents of our mind and i think that's why for many um the link between language and thought is often overestimated because you think like oh look they speak so well and they say such interesting things and you know they're so smart and of course that has to be true because language is a reflection it's like it's a mirror right in some sense it's a mirror of what's inside like if you don't have those complex thoughts of course you're not going to be able to say things about it. anyway but um uh so you know there must be work trying to see how language reflects and or potentially helps deal with trauma like that. i mean that's all like psychotherapy right. kind of stuff right that it is helpful for people to talk through their experiences or to try to find ways to like you know describe things in a way that maybe helps you process things that are kind of too hard to think about um but yeah that that's um that's a little far from uh <laughs> <our> <laughs> yeah 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 but um 
No, yeah. I, I realize you're 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 really studying um, such a, a specific process, and I'm and I'm trying to do exactly what you're saying it doesn't do. Um, <laughs> I, I was well, just. Well, we are interested in how it connects to other systems. It's just those are harder questions. Yeah, yeah, so it's harder questions. Yeah, um, you know, you also have studied, I believe, polyglots that people that mm. can speak many many languages. I obviously we all have friends that are like that. Um, yeah. I have a a Brooklyn born. New York accented friend who who lives in the Netherlands and um seven, eight, nine languages, no yeah, problem. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, do yeah. we know why some people um can do that and others can't? <laughs> um uh we know something about how their language systems look. We know that they seem to be more efficient when they process language, like they don't quite need to use as much brain, if you will when they process language really? so there's something yeah but it's not so far it's perfectly compatible and in fact that's how we think about it, is that it's more experiential effects like you basically you learn a lot of languages you do a lot of practice with languages and so you become more efficient at a task um, it's possible that there are some individuals who are innately predisposed to be this way but there's just not enough evidence like what you need to make these kinds of claims is like um quite a large scale, I mean, at least a couple hundred individuals where you have information on their history, you know, possibly some genetic testing, like, you know, I mean, for that, you will need more than a couple hundred people to do anything meaningful, unless you have a very specific target, like gene area that you're focusing on or something. But one thing that became very clear to me when I was working with this population is how different they are. Like you kind of think of them as a group, like, oh, these polyglots, and they're so different. Like they, some of them are incredible extroverts, right? They go to markets and strike up con conversations. You probably would be like this. You just go and start talking to people, no matter if, you know, <laughs> they're like so socially connected. And some, some polyglots, don't interact with people hardly at all and they learn everything from books or listening to the radio and you know it's a very different way of learning some of them say like oh yeah it comes easily to me you know like I hear a word and I just don't forget it like it's this yeah. kind of, you know very strong traces that language leaves in my brain and others say like no I don't think I'm different at all I just spend a lot of time doing it and there yeah. you know I get better at it like that's what happens when you put in time into something so I think it's a very it's quite a heterogeneous group um, and I think to do um, justice to understanding like why certain people are drawn to this, we need access to a much larger population than we've been able yeah. to. But so when I go to a market in France, I, I speak terrible French. I'll use a lot of, you know, pantomime uh, and sign language. Yeah. Do people who sign or people who mime... <laughs> Is that tapping into the same region of the brain as the spoken word language? Good question. So there's sign languages, which are just like spoken languages, and those okay. definitely draw on the same system. But things like gesturing does not. So, what? Um, yeah. <laughs> I understand, so, but it still represents the same thing. I wonder what's happening. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, so, so similar to pictures, right? Pictures can represent the same meanings. Not right. every, not, not all pick, like not all meanings can be captured in a picture, but also not all meanings can be captured in language sometimes. Right. In fact, like talk to artists or musicians, they'll be like, oh yeah, there's things I can express through, you know, art or music that I just can't use words for and whatever. So, um, yeah, so there's different meanings that we can express. And it appears that if we use some other medium, like if we draw a picture for someone or if we gesture something, um, 
it, it, it seems like we engage regions that are more closely tied to kind of uh, other social processes, like reading people's facial expressions or patterns of intonation in a voice, right? Like, is somebody sounding angry when they're talking to me? Or what is it that they want me to pay attention to right. in what they're saying? Things like that. Right. Um, and those regions are nearby, but also separate from the language areas. I have another crazy question. I must I must sound like I'm all over the place with you. No. It happens when you fine. talk to a non-scientist. Um, but I lived in the Netherlands for many, many years. It's arguably the ugliest language in the world. And then, you know, in my mind, French is so sensual and beautiful. Do we know why language, is there any benefit? Like, why did we develop certain ways of saying words in certain regions? Is it, is it dependent on climate or our brains? Or is there any, like, are we, do we all have the same brains? Or, or I guess I'm just curious. How yeah, I mean... Good question. Again, so, so we, uh, it seems like the the system is quite the like basic neural infrastructure is quite similar across people who speak different languages. But there are actually interesting. Interesting, you mentioned climate. There, there is interesting recent work suggesting that certain uh, environmental factors mm -hmm. may shape languages. Like, for example, in really dry climates, it's it's hard. To, it's effortful to say consonants like stop consonants like t and d. There's really? like a lot of s that's needed yeah and so there's some languages where you kind of avoid those sounds and you're focusing more kind of on vowels and a very small um inventory of consonants so there are these cool effects uh that some people have reported but there's also these ideas are kind of like so new and when they people first started kind of showing these relationships between languages and these other factors a lot of people had very strong kind of like no this can't be right but it seems that um uh uh you know the evidence seems to be accumulating. And one one thing that enabled a lot of this work is um, uh, in part the availability of corpora from many different languages, because for a long time, the study of language has been very like Anglo-centric, you know, some Germanic languages like German and Dutch, there's like good science going on there, but right. very, very focused on a very small number of, you know, in some ways, atypical languages, like English is actually quite atypical. Like if you look at the 7,000 languages spoken and signed across the world and look at how typical different features are, English is not like the most typical language. It just happened to be the colonizer's language, right? And so it's spread. Right. And so it's spoken right. by a lot of people and used in science and whatever. But there is a lot of things that you just can't study in English or that people have made generalizations about based on English that don't seem to apply, you know, across the board. And so I think there's now growing awareness that um, it's really important uh, to both try to generalize some core findings across diverse languages that sound different, use different sound inventories, that use different vocabularies and so on and so forth. Um, but also uh, for some phenomena, you just need to turn to other languages because English is so, you know, limited in, in some ways. So Yeah, it's really it's interesting. Exciting work. It also makes me wonder what the effect of global warming will be on the way we process language. Yeah, I wonder. I don't know. <laughs> but um, all right, this is another crazy question. But I told you all of the men in my family are brilliant PhD scientists. But if I ever ask them any kind of a question, it's always one word answer. Um, and it's it just it's not a coincidence that every hyper nerd in my family or anyone I've ever known. Um, does not answer with more than one or two words. Now that can't just be cultural, can it? I don't know. I mean, um, 
I my experience is that men really like to talk about their stuff. Okay. So it's just the men in my family. But I like I guess what I'm asking is is the way can you correlate are, are there different ways that language is processed in the brains of certain types of people versus others? Or is it pretty much, can you pretty much talk very at all? Very underexplored. That's very underexplored. That's a cool question. I actually, at some point, I got interested in this question of how the language systems of introverts and extroverts work because yeah. the linguistic experiences are very different for people who are like loners and prefer to be on their own and maybe mostly get language through written forms like books. Like the statistics of written language and auditory language are quite different. And then some yeah. people spend most of their time, you know, talking and listening to people talk. And that's just a very different linguistic experience. And so I just never found kind of the right person to quite work on this with. But this is a very underexplored question. I think it's a very interesting question of how different really? kinds. Of, yeah, 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 yeah. Different <laughs> kinds of experiences basically shape the language system. I mean, the, you know, the best um, kind of, way to study this that people have been doing a lot is like studying language over development right because early on you have very little exposure to language right because you've only right. been around for like a couple of years and then you get more and more and more and right. there, there are some people who study language and aging as well because language is one of very few capacities that doesn't decline with age which is great <laughs> that's like very encouraging because everything else just goes downhill starting in your right. 20s like general reasoning working memory all of that stuff all so gets worse and worse and worse. But language, we keep learning words. We keep learning constructions. We can extract mm -hmm. information from text just as well when we're 80, like if our brain is otherwise healthy. And so there is like that study of language as a function of experience over a course of a lifetime. Um, but I'm not aware of any like rigorous systematic investigations of how yeah. different like personality features or other experiences might affect um people other than this polyglot stuff that I also mentioned but <laughs> I mean there's an interesting thing I've noticed as a storyteller which is if I just say I ate a lemon and then continue talking the there'll be nothing in there if I take a few seconds to describe with specific language um the feeling of eating that lemon they'll actually salivate in the audience so yeah. when motor neurons are firing theirs are at the same time when I describe running on a beach vividly they're you know whatever sensory neurons like it yeah. seems to be there's there seems to be a direct um conversation between what's happening when I speak a word and what they receive do, do you know anything about that at all um I, I, mean, I mean language can certainly be used to activate all sorts of representation right like that's the power of language I can kind of talk about perceptual experiences I can talk about motor experiences there's certainly you know a, you know quite a lot of work showing that you can use linguistic representations to activate like okay. more areas right that would support you know the relevant kind of action so but um like how exactly this works in the sense of like you know what the representations are right. that have to be passed down from the language system to the like motor system for example um like we don't have quite good tools to study this but it's certainly the case that so even though the language system is quite specialized, of course, it has to work with all those other systems. So there are connections okay. between the language system and our emotion centers, our like olfactory systems, our visual systems, our auditory systems, all of the different bits that allow us to interact with the yeah. environment, get information in and produce behavior outwardly. And so uh, like, in, so, so in some sense, it's, I mean, not shocking that you can, given that language is such a flexible tool that we can talk about anything that you can 
yeah you know send some information to those other systems like that kind of happens. Yeah. so it's a it's a it's like a dance or a partnership exactly uh, yeah are you i'd love to hear about you know what what you're really looking forward to working on in the future and are you getting more and more involved in machine learning and ai and i'm just so curious about where your work will go next somewhat i mean um I mean, there, there's a lot of things that we don't um, understand uh, quite yet. And, you know, we'll, we will not be out of jobs, as I always tell my students. Like, there's so much that we don't get yet. There's so much. That's why sometimes when scientists fight for a little turf, uh, that just makes no sense to me because, like, we understand, like, as far as I'm concerned, like, we've made some progress for sure, but there's many, many things we don't understand. And one is um, kind of actually a lot of your questions have circled around that space is how different systems in the brain interact and share information with each other. And it's been really hard to study these questions, even in like very basic um, kinds of systems, even in animals, there's no great tools to study representation transfer. Because what you need for that is you need kind of high density neural recordings in two two places in the brain. So you can record in one place, in another place, and then try to figure out like how the information changes, right? As it goes from one place to the next. We and there's just yet. no technology. Like we don't have that yet, even for animals. So one thing that's exciting is that with the advent of these um, computational models that are really good at many human tasks, you can try to build systems that recapitulate some parts of our brain. So you can imagine taking like a language module and some kind of a reasoning module right. uh, and then try to get them to do some task that requires both language and reasoning. Like if I give you a problem and a verbal problem, uh, which is a math problem, right? So like I say, you know, three birds were, you know, flying around, then a couple more birds joined, then one bird got snatched by a hawk, and then five birds, right? So I'm giving you information. It right. comes to language, so your language system has to work. But then you also, if I have to later, if I ask you later about the, like, how many birds are left or whatever, you have to use your mathematical reasoning systems. Right. And so by trying to build artificial systems that combine a language and mm -hmm. like a math system we can try to start getting some handle on how it is like what kind of systems can you build such that you can transfer information between uh -huh. them and work together so that's cool and exciting um we're also doing a lot of work with um recording responses to language intracranially so this is in patients who like have you know to have like a tumor cut out or who have to have like a brain implant or something for like Parkinson's or something. Mm -hmm. And in those rare, I mean, they're not that rare, but it's relatively to like non-invasive tools like fMRI, it's really, really precious data for us because we can record directly from the brain surface or sometimes from, you know, inside the brain um, when people understand language or generate language. And those data, of course, are like, you know, much higher quality than things like fMRI, because we know exactly what happens millisecond by millisecond. It's very, very temporally resolved. We know exactly where it is in the brain, very spatially precise. And so I think that getting access to some of those recordings will be hugely helpful. Would you have um, to implant that at the time of surgery or like how would you, you it work? Don't, so, so you don't implant, you don't like, so things that people implant for medical purposes, like that's different. So what usually happens, for example, in uh, cases of um, uh, brain implants is, 
before you implant something, you kind of need to get to that place in the brain. And so you often need to go through the cortex. And mm -hmm. so you put in some shaft through the brain. And on that shaft, you can attach a few micro electrodes. And so as you're kind of doing the medically relevant okay. thing, you can take advantage of the fact that the patients are usually awake for these surgeries, but so you can say like, you know, can you please read these sentences while we're like messing with your brain or whatever? Oh my gosh, uh, that's so interesting. It's super fun, yeah. And in some cases, it's much easier, like for cases where sometimes patients don't respond to epilepsy drugs, in which case you may go into the brain and try to find the bit where the epilepsy kind right. of originates. And in those cases, they have a brain surgery, They the doctor will put some electrodes in, and then they stay in the hospital for a few days and mm -hmm. wait for the next seizure. So you can kind of triangulate, like, where did it come from? Right. And while they're sitting there with these electrodes, we can come in and say, like, would you mind listening to a story? Right. Like, which is our kind of language stimuli. Or would you mind, you know, doing this task? And oftentimes patients consent and then we can get these precious intracranial recordings. And I think that that will be um, that will take us further than uh, where we've gotten with fMRI. That I mean, obviously I could go on and on. I, I'm fascinated by this and I'm very excited for your work. And I can't, I know you're so busy and I can't thank you enough for taking yeah, just a little bit of time yeah. to share with our audience what you're up to. It's really fun. I hope we talk again. So I'm hope, to be there, I hope I didn't sound too, 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 too unscientific, but not uh, at all. Those are like really good, big questions. But yeah, no, I really thank you so much. And I, I can't right, wait right. to follow your career and endeavors and see what happens next. So, yeah. and I'm not so going to stop talking. I'm not stopping talking. <laughs> that sounds good. <laughs> Thank you so much. Right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the brand called You Videocast and Podcast, a platform that brings you knowledge, experience, and wisdom of hundreds of successful individuals from around the world. Do visit our website, www.tbcy.in, to watch and listen to the stories of many more individuals. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for the brand called You.